We're ready for our next panel. Um, you guys come on up. This is actually Cami uh, uh, Darling and uh, uh, Alejandro are the host of a new podcast, Blockchain for the Billions. And it's uh, all about adoption. And we were able to get today uh, Brett Harrison, the president of FTX. I don't know if anybody here has heard of FTX um, or what they've been up to lately. So I think we're lucky to, to get Brett. Um, the only, besides all the pressing questions, Brett, I want to know why so many photos of the pets? <laughs> because there's a lot of pets. Because there's a lot of pets. Yes. Okay, great. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah. So awesome. thanks, everybody, for being here. Very excited. Um, topic at hand uh, is sort of discussing some of the large differences and opportunities in both DeFi and CeFi. We're very lucky to have Brett here today. He's a subject matter expert, having spent the bulk of his career at uh, working in technology at many uh, trading firms throughout the country. Yeah, thanks so much for uh, having me up with you guys. Of course. Yeah, thank you for being here. So we'll get kind of into the questions. Um, curious, Brett, um, DeFi versus CeFi, uh, topic at hand, has, been, has become a very popular uh, sort of debate in the industry. Um, can you tell us sort of what both of these, what the main differences are sure. between the two? Yeah, so it's interesting um, watching the very civilized debates that happen on Twitter uh, about you know, drawing these very thick, bold lines between different things like centralized finance and decentralized finance. And of course, uh, it's amazing to be like running, running a company that does crypto stuff and being called like the old guard, traditional centralized evil player. It's just sort of insane. But, I think when you think about DeFi versus CeFi, it really is whether there are just about any intermediaries in the middle of some kind of finance. Now, centralized finance, like uh, in crypto, like FTX, has basically stripped away all of the intermediaries except for one. So as an exchange, we are the custodian of funds, we are the matching engine, we're the mobile app, we're the payments provider, we are you know, a, a marketplace for different items and tokens and NFTs and things like that. Uh, but DeFi is really removing that intermediary. Now, of course, we can argue about the degree of centralization in DeFi, like you know, how many of the nodes are all run on you know, Google Cloud, and therefore maybe Google is a centralized player in DeFi, and these are all things to debate. But I think what's important is giving people access to financial services around the world that otherwise they wouldn't have had access to if it weren't for sort of large institutional players that often stand in the way of them getting access to those things. And I think that CFI and DeFi have a, a lot of role to play with each other. You know, for example, um, if you ever interacted with the Solana ecosystem, you probably bought Solana tokens on something like FTX to transfer out to you know, your external phantom wallet so you can interact with like an NFT marketplace or something like that. And if you've done that, well, you probably had to go through a centralized player like us to be able to even connect a bank account. So you can only really connect a bank account to a regulated centralized player so that you could then interact and onboard with DeFi. So there's a big interplay between those two worlds. Fantastic, very interesting. Um, something that we like to do on blockchain for the billions, as um, Brian introduced us as um, our new podcast, is we like to kind of get the founders' stories a little bit. So with that being said, how would you sort of describe the early days of developing for FTX? Um, and how did you and Sam decide to start uh, building together? Sure. Um, so I, I joined FTX a little over a year ago, um, which is, you know, 85 years in crypto. And um, uh, I was 
previously at different uh, trading firms, quantitative hedge funds, that kind of thing. I was a, primarily at Jane Street Capital in New York City. I was there for eight years. And it was while I was there that I overlapped with Sam uh, when he was like a junior trader for, for four years. And um, you know, fast forward, we, we took you know, very similar paths in life. I moved to Chicago to start a family. He started three multi-billion dollar companies. And um, you know, long story short, he wanted to you know, really build out the US business, which he basically had a presence everywhere but the US because of all the regulations required in the US to actually build out a financial services business. And uh, asked me you know, if I wanted to come along and, and help build it out. And I said, yeah, let's do it. Um, I didn't really know what a blockchain was. I learned as fast as I could, and uh, the, the rest is history. And it's been amazing kind of working with him and just seeing the amount of stuff we've been able to build in such a short period of time. Absolutely. How would you sort of describe the dynamic between you and Sam? What uh, about your partnership makes you two complementary? Yeah, I think, you know, comes from a slightly more institutional background than Sam, just having seen just sort of firsthand what it's like to build out, you know, large automated distributed systems that work in various financial markets around the world, like at Jane Street and, and Citadel and Headlands, we were trading in you know, 50 or 60 different countries and five or six different asset classes and just understanding the idiosyncrasies of all these things, how they play together, what the regulations are, what the rules are, um, has sort of helped bring what's a little bit like was a Wild West world of crypto exchanges into what's been required to actually build out a FinCEN regulated crypto token exchange, a FINRA registered broker dealer for you know, stocks, a CFTC regulated derivatives exchange in the US for crypto futures and options. And so I think like his sort of like, you know, completely blank slate build the future world versus sort of my like build, but also understand the regulatory state of being here in the US has sort of uh, been pretty complimentary. Absolutely. Um, and so with that, there have been some complicated terms flying around the industry, especially on Twitter, um, such as you know algorithmic stablecoins, DEXs, uh, liquidity pools. Um, do you think any of these DeFi use cases today have the potential to disrupt traditional finance um, in significant ways? Yeah. Um, so let me take two of those. Uh, one I think is you know probably done more harm than good, and one I think is a very important use case for DeFi. So to take the first one, algorithmic stablecoins. So first of all, what is like a stablecoin or an actual stablecoin or a fiat-backed stablecoin? It's basically a digital dollar. So you take one actual dollar and you bring it to an issuer like Circle or Paxos, and they issue you one you know, digital token representing that $1, whether it's an ERC-20 token or an SBL token, you know, whatever blockchain you're using. And then you can use that to either, you know, directly pay people, you know, in some sort of traditional financial deal. For example, there's a lot of venture capital that actually goes around being paid in things like USDC. Or you can use it to interact with DeFi, because again, you need some kind of sort of stable unit of currency for things to be priced against in DeFi, but it can't be actual dollars because these DeFi DEXs are not actually connected to the traditional financial system because they're not regulated. And the reason why it's actually equal to $1 is because you can take that token at any point and for free bring it back to Paxos or back to Circle and get back your dollar. Well, an algorithmic stablecoin is something entirely different. It is not a stablecoin at all. It is like an auto-rebalancing structured product. It's basically like you take Bitcoin or some risky asset, and if the thing doesn't equal $1 anymore, you like buy more if it's under, or you sell more if it's over. 
And it's sort of like this perpetual motion machine that works until it doesn't. And unfortunately, it got kind of blended together with other stable coins. And people were doing things like trying to price stuff in terms of you know, UST or you know, USDD. And that, again, works until like, that peg completely dissolves. And so I think that's done a lot more harm than good. Now, what I do think is very, very important for DeFi is like liquidity, like lending pools. I think, and I, I've written some stuff about this in the past, that I think that borrowing capital and lending out capital is the cornerstone of financial mobility. Everything from like, okay, how many people in this room are like investors? And how do you invest? Like, well, you know, usually it's like someone who doesn't have money now, and you have money, and so you lend money to them to go do stuff, and then they promise you to give you more money than you put in, right? So how would all these companies exist if they couldn't have like an access to a lending market that like you guys provide? On the micro scale, you have people who might not have enough money to make it to their next paycheck in two weeks. And so they go to like a payday lender who gives them $200 for 60% interest. Well, that's, you know, it's robbery. And the idea that you have to be someone with $100 million to get a great loan shouldn't have to be the case. So I think that a really good compelling case for DeFi is allowing people to borrow on micro and macro levels without all of these unnecessary intermediaries that are taking just enormous fees and cuts in, in, along the whole way. Absolutely. I think there's one thing that you're sort of getting at there is just the amount of nuance in the space and use cases. Um, for example, you know, even just with stable coins, not every stable coin is made differently. Some are sort of uh, fractionally reserved and some are dynamic collateral ratios. There's really a ton of nuance. And, um, you know, I was recently on a panel uh, about the state of DeFi. And I think one of my sort of largest grievances is just the sort of state of education, really, in, in the system. And just the amount of knowledge that, you know, something that should be, in theory, uh, democratic uh, requires to really sort of uh, understand it at, at an expert level. Um, so yeah, I think that I, we have a lot of I think like if you go to sleep for a month, you've like missed everything in, in yeah. crypto. It's like there's new stuff you've never heard of. There's like carrot farming and there's like, you know, like upside down algorithmic yields or whatever it comes out and it's like, oh man, I don't know what yeah. any of this is anymore and you're currently you know, totally behind. So yeah, I think like it's sort of incumbent upon the people in this room to build stuff that helps kind of like obscure some of that complexity and make it easier for people to kind of get into the space without needing to be, you know, PhDs in computer science. Absolutely. Um, and I think something that FTX has sort of really excelled at and has sort of set a standard around in the industry is documentation and education. Whenever you guys have an API, uh, whenever I try to use it, I notice it's incredibly well documented. Um, it's really easy to sort of interact with. And I remember not too long ago, I myself was at a trading firm um, and I was building some sort of systematic strategies. And so in my spare time, I would sort of you know, play around with some of the FTX API for pulling data. And um, you know, among the sort of uh, uh, coworkers that I had at, at, in the industry, uh, there was a real hesitance to sort of break into crypto because a lot of the infrastructure wasn't really there. Um, and this is something that FTX really played a huge part in, right? Standardizing this infrastructure. And it turns out that when you connected, the API that you used for FTX was literally the industry standard for systematic trading, a fixed protocol, right? And a lot of people just didn't sort of even know that this existed. So the, one of the things that I think about is just FTX really bringing in, uh, really being really good about educating people and bringing in institutional interest into the space uh, and kind of doing it in a regulatory compliant way. So I just want to sort of sure. point that out and applaud you there. Um, connected to that is just my general interest in the culture, in the culture at FTX. Um, you guys are notorious for, you know, at least 
as of June 6th, I think Sam pointed out that you guys were operating with 26 total developers, which is unheard of for a billion dollar company. And so it's kind of a contrarian idea to sort of not expand exponentially your expenses, ironically, but actually just sort of expand exponentially in productivity, which is a, it's a really interesting model for me. And another one of Sam's tweet that sort of really stuck out to me as really sort of contrarian, but kind of uh, ahead of its time, really, and, and you know, really kind of uh, visionary-esque almost, is the way that you guys hire. You guys, uh, he sort of tweeted that several of your developers were actually rejected by other firms, but now produce more output than probably that entire firm, firm's development team. So something that you guys do is really grow your talent, and I think that's absolutely incredible. I think hiring in technical industries, I've noticed, has, has kind of tended to be very uh, broken, and, and you know, we tend to look at where people are today, but not how we can help them grow alongside companies. So I wanted to get your perspective on sort of shaping that culture and forming that culture uh, in that industry. What, what was it like to, to sort of form, form that culture and how are you intentional about that? Yeah, so at FTX, we are very, very deliberate about hiring, as you said. You know, we are, I guess, by last valuation, whether that means anything to you or not, we're something like a $40 billion company combined. We have 300 people. Um, we have around 20 software developers. And the point there is that if you're very, very careful to make sure that you are growing very intentionally, you're, if you're hiring someone, it's because they're fulfilling an absolute need that you just cannot fill right now. And you know that that person, when they start, they're going to have way more very important, useful work than they're going to be able to do. Then you know, it's worth it to make that hire. And making sure that like hiring that marginal person doesn't make the team too large. It doesn't sort of break down the process. It doesn't add a person whose job is just to like tell other people what to do. I think, I, I think that a lot of companies fall into what I call the, um, the hiring Ponzi, where you, you hire a bunch of people. You, do really, you, you get a lot of revenue, and then you know, your investors tell you, like, well, the, the way that you show you're doing, being successful is you hire a bunch of people. OK, great. So you go hire a bunch of people. Now you have to train them. And how long does it take to train an employee to be you know, useful at a company? It probably takes around six months before they're really productive. And then six months in, you go hire another wave of people. And it's those people's job to hire, to train that next wave of people. And then the cycle repeats, and all you're doing is hiring people to train other people to train other people to train other people, but you're not getting work done. And so at some point, you kind of you, you lose the, the sight of the, the, you know, the forest for the trees, or however that saying goes. And so for us, it's really important to always be working on exactly what is the next most important thing, which means we say no to a lot of stuff. There's a lot of things that we could be doing that we say, you know what, we don't have enough people to do that thing, but we don't want to hire 10 more people to do that thing. We want to just focus on the, you know, the most important stuff. And it means that we can ship stuff incredibly quickly because there's no bullshit in the middle to like prevent someone from, like you don't have to get you know, approval from your manager's manager's manager to ship something. Um, so that's been a very, very important part of our growth and something that I think that hopefully after this like very painful but I think instructive round of, of layoffs from so many different growth tech companies around the sector, um, not just in crypto, but just in, in tech in general, that you know, people will learn from this experience and try to really stay kind of true to their core team and, and be a lot leaner as a company. Absolutely. Uh, a couple last questions uh, for you here before we head into the Q&A for a couple of minutes. But um, I know we touched on liquidity pools and borrowing pools um, that kind of get you a little amped about DeFi. What else uh, about DeFi gets you excited? I like the idea of um, sort of interoperability. 
And I don't think you need DeFi for interoperability, but I do think DeFi provides a sort of like de facto requirement for interoperability. Like if you, if you deploy a smart contract, well, now it's open source and anyone can interact with it for the most part, um, as opposed to needing to sort of trust that some company is gonna keep their API open and interoperable with other things forever. I mean, like, you know, uh, HTML or something is like an interoperable protocol. And like every browser has sort of agreed that they're gonna support that and not support some random other protocol for, you know, showing markup on a page. Those companies aren't decentralized Web3 companies, they're Web2 companies, and they sort of agreed on a standard. But as all these tech companies are being incentivized to kind of make things that are walled gardens that are very difficult to kind of pull data outside of, it's very difficult to sort of force them to become interoperable. Imagine saying to like Twitter, okay, you must now be able to take like YouTube posts, you know, directly, and it's all gotta be interoperable, they would probably say like, eh, it doesn't seem like it's worth it. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I do think that that is sort of gonna allow for a lot more synergies within protocols as well. And just, uh, you know, just wanna echo, uh, like you were saying, uh, sort of the importance of, of being open source and digitally native um, software just kind of from the inception, right? Kind of a very different uh, go-to-market than we've seen traditional industries uh, use. So we've got our crypto in Chicago panel up next. I know that you guys recently opened your US headquarters here in Chicago yep. back in May. Congratulations for that. Um, so we want to ask why, why did you choose Chicago? What about Chicago uh, made you guys want to plant your flag here? Yeah. Um, it's a very complex decision based on the complete selfishness of me living here. Um, <laughs> but beyond that, I do think Chicago is an amazing place to have a, any kind of fintech company. I mean, like for us, all the, like, the largest exchanges in the world are, are here. I mean, think about like, you know, you have the CME, you have SIBO, um, you have CHX, you know, you have just a rich history in Chicago of financial innovation. You have all the largest hedge funds and trading firms. You have like Citadel and DRW and Jump and all these different places. A large VCs, you know, down, down the street here is Google. I mean, there's just so much talent and innovation happening in Chicago. Plus, like, it's an awesome place to live, and you know, it's like it's not going to, you know, fall into the ocean or be on fire soon. And it's a plus. Um, so, uh, yeah. So I think it's just it's just an awesome, you know, confluence of a lot of really good things. Fantastic. Many many uh, factors, but very pro Chicago. We love yeah. it. We've got about two minutes for questions here, um, so we'll answer some. Okay, um, hold on. Brian's got the mic. <laughs> Hi, I'm Rohan from Tower Research, and I want to know um, how do you think interest rates or rising interest rates are going to affect proof of stake and lending protocols in the next coming months? Yeah, good question. Oh, Tower, another huge trading firm that's here. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to leave you out. Um, yeah, I, so it's interesting. I think um, a lot of people flock to DeFi for yields because interest rates were zero, and it like sucks to put your money in a bank account and get no interest. Um, and so people started to put their money to work in, in DeFi protocols. But a lot of these DeFi protocols were sort of like too good to be true. And they were extremely risky. And there's a, a huge risk profile across different pools. Like, you know, uh, like stuff on Curve or whatever versus things on like Compound or Aave. So I think now that yields, like, you know, normal, like lend out your money through traditional finance yields are, you know, going up as r r rates are rising. 
I can't tell if that means that on average DeFi lending pools will also increase. It's sort of think about like, you know, prime plus or, you know, like the rate plus, or whether it means people will just like participate less because why take the risk if like, do you really want your 5% in the pool when you can get 3% lending through traditional financial institutions? It's, it's kind of hard to tell. And, and maybe the result will be that some of the really risky, silly stuff will kind of like fall away over time. Hey, Brett, I, um, I have a question. Um, could you summarize for us your proposal to the CFTC that you have on for listed derivatives and what the pushback is? Another half hour or no? Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, all right, I'll, I'll do this as, as fast. in Chicago. Uh, I yeah, I gotta ask. Okay, so I'll do this sort of uh, the short version. So. FTX, acquired, FTX US acquired a company last October called LedgerX. LedgerX is a CFTC-regulated clearinghouse and exchange. So it's all of the same licenses that the CME has or ICE has to be able to offer derivatives products. Our clearinghouse, though, uh, doesn't have permission to offer contracts on margin. They have to be fully collateralized. You buy one Bitcoin future, you have to post one Bitcoin as collateral. That's not a very interesting product. So we would like to offer margin. But one thing that's different about us than, let's say, the CME is that we allow on the international exchange, as do other crypto exchanges, people to be direct customers of the exchange and clearinghouse. Normally, in the traditional futures world, you find an inter intermediating broker, you know, an FCM, a futures commission merchant. You open an account with them, and then they have to be members of the exchange. Or if they're not, maybe they have to go through another FCM who's a member of the exchange. There's a network of intermediaries. We want to be able to clear our customers directly yeah, and that's one part of it. The other part of it is that most derivatives exchanges compute the kind of variation margin and figuring out when customers need to post more, like once a day or once every two days, and they're open five days a week. So FTX is open 24-7, and we do margin in real time, like every 30 seconds. So it's the combination of 24-7 real-time margin direct to customer that is sort of a novel aspect of what we're trying to do, We've submitted like a 2,000-page application to the CFTC to show them that we, our risk model is sound, that we have all the procedures in place to operate this model so that we can start to offer Bitcoin and Ether futures and options directly to U.S. customers from a CFTC-regulated exchange. And the reason why we're excited about this is that the overwhelming majority of crypto volume doesn't trade in spot tokens. It trades in derivatives, just like in futures on stocks and futures on bonds and things like that. Um, but 97% plus of that volume happens outside the U.S. And that's because no like, crypto native exchange has really brought futures to the U.S. and gone through the regulatory process. And so that's why what we're doing is really exciting to hopefully bring a lot of that volume that's happening globally to the U.S. So quick question. Uh, Ari Hassan Elizade from uh, Genesis Global. I, um, I have to ask. Falling into the ocean concerns aside, why did you pick Chicago over Miami? Because I know that's another market that you've heavily invested in, you know, FTX Arena and whatnot, um, you know, the DeFi capital, you know, of the U.S. with the crypto bull. Sure. Why here and not there? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think, uh, we, is Samir here? No? Okay. Well, anyway, I think that what we say a lot is that, you know, Chicago is way too humble about how good it is as a place to live and how good it is for all the talent. And the, like the, the bottom line is all the high-frequency trading firms are primarily here in Chicago. Um, all of the exchanges are here. The Miami Options Exchange is in New Jersey. It's not in Miami. <laughs> so 
you know, they, they, these, these changes around the world, they're, they're here in Chicago. Chicago's a real financial center. And we think of ourselves like much more of like a finance company than a startup. I mean, we are connecting to banks all over the world. We're processing you know, billions of dollars of payments. We have custody. We're a matching engine. We're an exchange. That's really our core business. And so for us, it really does make sense here. And we think like you know, the hype aside, Chicago has this incredible booming ecosystem of, of tech, of innovators, of financial technology. And um, yeah, it's a really good place to be. Also, Miami is really hot. And I like building snowmen in the winter. I'm sorry. Yes. Mm, okay. So I, I definitely not going to be up here and speak ill of competitors. Um, but the question was, you know, why has FTX surpassed Coinbase in spot volume? Um, so first of all, there's a quick stat. So FTX internationally, um, including the derivatives, does around three times the volume of Coinbase every day, with one twentieth or one thirtieth of the number of customers. So the average you know, customer on FTX is trading 60 times more than on Coinbase. And that's because our platform primarily has catered to institutions, high frequency trading firms. And of course, we would love to get all those retail users too, but that's really where we've you know, thrived. I would say right now in this, in this environment where prices go down, typically that's when retail stops trading. And if your business relies entirely on retail, your volumes are going to dry up. So it's sort of natural that as a percentage of total volume, you know, we're going to go up. Uh, but on top of that, we've played a very long game in terms of regulation. You know, on FTX US, we list like 25 tokens. Um, that's like an order of magnitude fewer than our competitors. And that's because we have concerns over you know, what the SEC is going to do. And of course, that's kind of come to fruition because of a couple of days ago. Um, we've been focusing more on kind of diversifying our product set to be not just you know, crypto tokens, but other things like futures and stocks. So we think that that's also contributed to what we think will be um, a very strong position for us in the long term. Thanks very much, guys. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys.